Hey, just one quick note. Uh, in your bulletin today, you received a, uh, a little, uh, we're calling them Calvary Mountain View Distinctives. And uh, this is just our statement of faith, which you all should know. It's on our website. But we have about a dozen of these little handouts that we're going to be handing out in the next couple months. And they cover everything from the basics, like our statement of faith, to different things like what we believe about water baptism and communion and baby dedications and just all kinds of different things that we do that people often ask questions about. So these would be great if you want to keep them, slide them in the back of your Bible. They're going to become kind of a, a great ministry reference tool. Um, and if you're not into paper, you can drop them back off at the info table. And we'll always keep them here. They're great for people who ask questions. If you have people that are inquiring about the church and they're asking questions that you don't know the answers to, you'll find that they're going to be on all these little distinctives cards. So... Hey, really excited to be here. I mentioned last week that this time of year is one of my favorites in the, the new year, of course. And the book of Lamentations, we know, declares that God's mercies are new every morning. And so how much more so does it seem like they're new and they're available to us at the beginning of a brand new year? And I have to say, as I've been kind of looking ahead prayerfully at 2009 and maybe reflecting a little bit on 2000, did I say 2009? So, yeah, that didn't sound right to me either. Let's do 2019. So, you know, I've been reflecting on 2018. Um, I have to say, I feel like I've been really encouraged because I, I just really think the Lord's given me some very clear and simple direction personally on exactly what it is that he wants from me in this coming year. And I think I can safely say that it's what he wants from each of us individually, and really the, it would be his main goal for us as a church corporately. But instead of telling you exactly what it is, I want to tell you instead where I think in the scriptures we see it so clearly illustrated. So turn with me to John chapter 2 this morning. We're going to take one more week of pause from our study through Matthew. But we're going to look this morning at another very familiar event in the life of Jesus, and that's the turning of the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. Because I believe as we work our way kind of through just the first 11 verses of this account of what was the very first of Jesus' miracles, I think that the Lord's really going to reveal his heart for us for 2000. And 19. So let's just pray and ask him to do exactly that today. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we just pray even now as we go to it, Lord, that you would bless our time, Lord, that you would be our teacher, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today as you reveal your heart to us, Lord, um, through your word. And so we thank you, Lord, and pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been said, you've all heard, that seeing is believing, or you know, that a picture's worth a thousand words. And certainly this is so true, and we can what we see can dramatically affect what we believe. And in the four gospels, there are about 35 separate miracles of Jesus that are recorded for us. And these miracles, despite what some would say, Jesus didn't perform miracles in some sort of a failed attempt to try to remove all sickness from the world. 
But instead, the miracles of Jesus, as we've been seeing in the book of Matthew, they establish his authority to forgive sin. They prove that he was sent from God, and they prove that he is God. And so these miracles that were recorded, we know, they weren't the only ones that he did, but they were the specific ones which the writers picked out under the inspiration, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, in order to sort of represent Jesus' ministry. You remember at the end of John's gospel account, he says that the books of the world would be filled with the accounts of Jesus' miracles if they had all been written down. And so out of these many miracles that Jesus performed, we know in the gospel of John, he selected only seven really to, to use to prove the deity of Jesus. And this, this morning, is the first of those seven miracles. And as we join Jesus in our text today, we need to remember we're just literally days into the beginning of his public ministry. You know, as he's preparing to reveal himself to his people. On the first day, you remember the account there in John chapter 1, we find John the Baptist gets quizzed by the Pharisees as to exactly who he is. We see him answer the question that says he's just a forerunner, right, sent to prepare the way for this Messiah that was coming. On the second day, we see Jesus show up. And remember, John makes that declaration. He points out that it's the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world and upon whom the Spirit of God had descended like a dove and, and rested there. On the third day, John the Baptist points out Jesus again, and we see you know, the, the first two of his disciples, John, the author of this book, Andrew, and then his brother Peter, they start to follow after Jesus, and then they testify that he was indeed the Messiah, he's the Christ. And then on the fourth day, now here in the Galilee, we see Jesus call Philip and Nathaniel, and they're the ones who first bear witness that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament prophets had spoken of, that he was the Son of God, that he's the King of Israel. So it's at this point then that we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2, where it just begins by saying that on the third day. Now, interesting in our chronology, third day here probably means three days after the calling of Philip and Nathaniel. So a total of just seven days since the beginning of the action, right? Now we need to remember this because I think that we can read these gospel accounts and all of these events beginning to unfold and we forget that these things were happening right before the eyes of these disciples. These were the initial stages of them really just learning about Jesus. And now here today, at this wedding, right, just three days after the initial disciples were called, they were about to learn even more. They were about to really start to see some of his glory revealed. And isn't it interesting that they would witness this Right, the beginning of the revelation of his glory, when? On the third day. Coincidence? Of course not. Because this reference to the third day is a foreshadowing for us of the resurrection. Right, when Jesus' true glory was finally going to be manifest to everyone as he would rise from the dead on the third day. And that was the sign which would confirm his ministry and confirm ultimately his deity. So we see that it was on this third day, the rest of verse 1 tells us, they were in the midst of this joyous occasion. It says that there was a wedding 
in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now understand, we think weddings are a big deal today. In Jesus' day, wedding celebrations lasted for an entire week. And during that time, all of the relatives and the friends would actually travel, come, and stay in the home of the bride and groom. It was sort of like a, think of it as sort of a honeymoon family reunion, bachelor bachelor party, wedding shower, kind of all rolled into one. And this particular wedding, it says, was in Cana of Galilee. So that would have been about six or eight miles north of Nazareth. We're specifically told that Jesus' mother is there. Now, isn't it interesting that John doesn't give us her name? And in fact, in his gospel, under the inspiration, of course, of the Spirit, he specifically never mentions by name either himself or the mother of Jesus. The point is that he's trying to draw attention not to either of them, but put all of the focus, redirect it back to the son. And what we find here, they're both there, it says, with Jesus and the disciples. They're together at this wedding feast. Some people believe that based on the way we're going to see Mary respond in our story, that she may actually have been related somehow to the bride or maybe to the groom's family. Because next we read in the next couple verses, they're going to face a real practical problem. It says in verse 3 that when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, to run out of wine at one of these week-long wedding bashes was a major social faux pas. The Jews believed that to fail to provide for your guests would bring this lasting social disgrace. And historians tell us that in these very closely knit communities of Jesus' day, that this kind of a blunder would probably never be forgotten. And it would haunt the newly married couple probably for their whole lives. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, in that time, wine was a symbol of joy. We find references to it in the scriptures. We know that it was taught that way by the rabbis. And so to run out of wine (coughs) would have almost been the equivalent of admitting that neither the guests nor the groom or the bride we're happy. Now, this may not powerfully translate to us in our culture, but what I think does translate in this kind of a picture of the wineless wedding, it to me so typifies the lost in the world today. Because those who are lost are, are tasting of the world's pleasures, but they're ultimately finding no personal satisfaction. And whatever fulfillment they are able to find eventually runs out. We see this picture of the Bible inviting like thirsty sinners to come to Christ, right, for salvation and for satisfaction. And so here, when the supply of wine is all used up, Mary turns to Jesus in the hopes that somehow he could solve the problem. And I think we mentioned before, Part of Mary's concern might have been that she may have been sort of a hostess at this wedding. You know, she might have been kind of the equivalent of what we might call a wedding coordinator. And so perhaps personally, she would have been disgraced as well over this shortage of wine. And that could be true. 
But I think that Mary, I think that Mary was actually interested here in much more than just a shortage of wine. Now think about with this with me just for a minute. No doubt at this point, Mary has been eagerly anticipating Jesus' day of demonstration, right? Because for her, that same day would have been a day of vindication. Because remember, as a young woman, right, probably just 14 or 15 years of age, she had become miraculously pregnant by the Spirit of God. And though the Bible tells us that she was highly favored by God, it says that she was blessed among women, also, no doubt, she must have been the subject of severe speculation, even probably slander and much conversation and probably commotion. And so for 30 years now, Mary had lived with the knowledge that her character had been unjustly maligned. So I think that it's possible, I think that it's actually probable that at this point, she was looking to her son, like we said, not just for wine, but for vindication. Thinking that if people could only see who he really was, perhaps they would at last see the truth about her as well. Right? She'd been waiting for years for Jesus to be about his father's business, if you will. And now finally, we, you know, she... She's now seen him, you know, he's just made this first kind of acknowledgement publicly by John the Baptist. He'd started to choose his initial disciples. And so I think that probably she's anxious with anticipation for her son to really excel, but more so for her reputation to be repaired. And so she makes this request of him, but look what happens in verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, when we read this the way it's translated, it sounds like Jesus is a little harsh, right? Almost rude even to his mother. He calls her woman, right? Instead of calling her mother. And yet the word that he uses for woman isn't meant one. It's not one that was meant to demean her. It's not like saying, hey, old lady, you know, or something, leave me alone or something like that. It's a, it's a word more so that it's a term of respect that, that he used. And so he does respond with kind of this gentle rebuke. And yet, as we see in his explanation, his rebuke of her was as much for his father's glory as it was for his mother's good because Jesus knew that the timing just wasn't right. That phrase there, my hour, it's a term that John uses in his gospel seven different times, and each time it refers to the fact that it hadn't arrived yet, the time hadn't come yet. And then in John chapter 17 and verse 1, just hours before his death, we finally, for the first time, hear Jesus pray. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son may also glorify you. So the hour was the time of Jesus' crucifixion and of his resurrection and of his ascension. It was that irrefutable declaration of who he was, the undeniable proof of his deity, the time when his earthly ministry would be completed and his, you know, his father fully glorified. And though that, that time would eventually come, he's saying here, it wasn't here yet. So in a sense, what he's saying to his mother is, look, I know better than anyone 
how you've suffered patiently, you know, how you've been hurt. I understand your situation, but it's not time yet to fix everything. Not quite yet. You notice Jesus was never prompted by other people's schedules or timetables. He says, yes, Mary, I understand that you want me to be revealed as the Emmanuel, right? The, the miraculously born Messiah, the Son of God, but it's not time yet. And although you are my earthly mother, I need to be more concerned about the timeline of my heavenly father. And this is important for us because sometimes I think that like Mary, we can ask the Lord to do something for us that'll get us off the hook, right? Or make us look a little bit better. We ask him to do something that's going to smooth our path or maybe it'll lighten up our load. But so often those requests of ours they're not his will. They're not his highest for our lives. And so it's at those times when I think Jesus sometimes whispers to our, to our hearts, just like he's doing here to Mary, he says, what does your concern have to do with me? He says, this isn't the hour. This isn't the time. This isn't the place. Yes, he says, your problem is going to be solved. Yes, he promises, your reputation will be salvaged. Yes, he says to us, there will be healing that comes, but not yet. He says, because the hour has not yet come. Have you ever heard those words whispered tenderly to your heart by the Lord? I certainly know that I have. And then what happens, I think, is, you know, when he's dealt with our hearts, then we can respond in humility, just like Mary does. Look at the way she gives some good and practical instruction. In verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And I so appreciate Mary's heart here, because even though Jesus hadn't granted her true request, her response to the servants by saying, hey, just do whatever he tells you, reveals to me that she submitted to her son and that even though she didn't fully understand, she trusted him completely. And there's so much wrapped up in this one little statement, you know, whatever he says to you, do it. You know, there's certainly a whole series of Sunday mornings we could spend there. So I think this morning, if there's one thing to say to all of us that what it would be is whatever Jesus says, do it, right? Now, that's not actually the one thing that I promised you that we would take into 2019 with us, although now that I think about it, it's a pretty good one. So maybe there's actually two things that we're supposed to take into 2019. Anyway, I love Mary. She didn't fully understand what he would do, but I think that she sensed that Jesus was going to do something. That he was going to work in this situation. He was somehow going to meet this present need. And so notice what she does. She just puts the whole thing into Jesus' hands. Right? She's going to let him do whatever he wants in whatever way that he wants to do it. And what a great reminder for each one of us. Because watch next. Faced with this very practical problem you know, as we all have been faced with, what Jesus does to solve it is really a miraculous solution. Look at verse 6. It says, Now there were set there six water pots of stone, 
according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, before we go on, we've talked about this. Remember, the Jews saw themselves as ceremonially unclean if they didn't wash both before and after, and sometimes even during their meals. And so these pots that John specifically tells us, these would have been the water pots that were used for those purification rites. They weren't water pots that were used for drinking. In fact, it would have been disgusting for a Jew to drink water from a water pot like this. And yet, look at verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, Jesus isn't picking out these pots because they were necessarily appropriate to have drinking water in there, but simply because they would have provided this huge supply of water. Again, if they were each about 20 to 30 gallons, we're talking about a combined total of 120 to 180 gallons of water. It would be not unlike him saying, hey, take those six trash cans over there and fill them up with water. And I think that's kind of an encouraging concept, at least to me, because it reinforces that important and I think refreshing principle of the scriptures that it's not at all about the container, right? It's not about the vessel, but it's what's inside of it that's so important. The Apostle Paul, we know in his writings to the church, often compares us as human vessels, uh, as human beings, to a vessel. Look in verse uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says that in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be used as a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work. Isn't it interesting that John specifically describes these particular pots as being of stone, which I also think pictures perfectly for us our human hearts, right? Which are hard and they're empty, aren't they, apart from the work that Jesus wants to do. This is important for us to keep in mind because sometimes we can look around at the lives of unbelievers and they look so perfectly together and yet the truth is that the life of an unbeliever may look lovely on the outside but God sees it as empty and useless for honor at least unless and until he does a miracle in that vessel. We know that water in the Bible is an image of what? It's an image of the word of God. And it's interesting, I think it's important. Notice all the servants had to do was what? Fill the empty water pots with water. And it's not unlike at all the way that we as servants of God are to fill up the empty hearts of unbelievers with the word. Remember church, it's not our job to save souls but it is our job to simply give people the word, right? Fill them up and then let Jesus perform the miracle of salvation. So here we see these servants under the direction of Jesus. They were used in this unique place of blessing for this miracle because Jesus wanted, he wanted to partner with people. 
Just as in the other miracles that we've studied, Jesus could have filled up these pots all by himself. Even easier, he could have created liquid in them with just a word. And yet he knew that if the servants shared in the work, then they would also share in the blessing. And it wasn't because they did the miracle, but they would share simply because of one thing, and that's their obedience to him. Because of this, they shared in the joy of this miracle. I think it's amazing sometimes when we consider how little the Lord really requires of us, and yet the great extent to which he blesses us for what little we actually do for him. Think about that as you enter into this coming year. Notice they didn't just obey, but it says they obeyed without question, right? It says they obeyed to the fullest, right? They filled the pots up to the brim, which meant that now this miracle could be fulfilled in the greatest amount possible. Imagine if these had been lazy servants and they just filled the pots up halfway. There would have only been half as much wine, right? Half as much blessing. And sometimes I wonder how often in our service to the Lord or maybe just our devotion to the Lord, we only give ourselves halfway and then when we're only blessed halfway, we wonder why, right? And we start to complain to him. Folks, when God calls you to do something this year, whether it's in ministry or it's relationally or maybe it's professionally or parentally, right? Whatever it is, do it to the fullest. Because it's only when we do that, only then will we see the abundance to which Jesus is able to provide for us. I love that Peter, you know, Jesus didn't just send Peter down to Bevmo to pick up a gallon of wine, right? It says he provided 126 gallons. Now, think about that quantity. Either this was an incredibly huge party or Jesus is just showing us, I think, how truly gracious and how giving he is. There was one Christian author I was reading. I love what she wrote. She said, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment if only I had known you better, I would have come running with a bucket. Right? We know the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians that he talks about him who is able to do what? Exceedingly, abundantly, above all things that we could ask or think. And yet that blessing in abundance can come only when we step out in obedience. Just, you know, just like we see the servants do here. But when we do that, rest assured, we just need to wait and we just need to watch what's going to happen next. Because here, faced with this very practical problem, right, on this joyous occasion, Jesus provides this miraculous solution, right, involving some servants who follow this good instruction. And look what the result is. It's an unexpected outcome in verse 8. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. 
Now, I'm going to stop here because sometimes I think that we can read these stories, right? We can kind of run through these verses and we sort of miss out on what's really going on here. Consider the faith of these servants. They had just filled these six purification pots with water, the very same pots that they had probably just used to wash everybody up before the feast. And now Jesus tells them to take some of that foot water or whatever, you know, and, and let their master have a taste of it. Can you imagine bringing your master a cup of, you know, water to drink instead of wine and how angry he would be after tasting that it was only water, let alone even if he didn't know where it came from? And yet notice the way these servants believed and they obeyed the Lord one step at a time. Now that's a hard one, isn't it? We see it over and over in the scriptures because we need to see it over and over in the scriptures, right? Jesus didn't say, okay, servants, come on, huddle up, here's the plan. See those big water pots? I want you guys to fill them up and then as you start pouring them out to serve your master, I'm gonna perform a miracle. And then the water's going to turn into wine. None of you guys are going to lose your jobs or your heads. John's going to actually write about this in the second chapter of his gospel. And you guys are all going to be famous. <laughs> That's what he didn't do. Instead, he told them what to do one step at a time. And the miracle happened only what? As they faithfully followed each and every step. Too often, if you're anything like me, I want to know what steps two through five are before I'm even going to consider whether I'm going to follow step one. It's like, you know what, Lord, just let me know the plan. You know, let me know exactly where I'm going to be next month or next year. And then I'd also like, you know, where I'm going to be three years from now. If you lay it out clearly, Lord, then I might go for it. But... You know, all of that I know that you guys know. You're a smart church, right? God doesn't work that way, right? He unfolds things one at a time the very same way he did for the servants here at a wedding. But here's what we so often forget. Even beyond that, write this one down, right? What we forget is at the point where we stop obeying, that's the point where that unfolding stops happening. When we stop obeying, he stops unfolding. Now, I'm sure the apologists out there are going to get all over me for this next statement, but I believe it absolutely to be true. There is only one thing in this universe that can limit God, and that's us. Right? That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That our unbelief can and will limit the creator of the universe from working in our lives. The way that he can and the way that he wants to bring healing and to bring wholeness and to bring blessing and miracles because God isn't going to force himself upon us. But rest assured, when we, like the servants here, when we start to take those steps of faith, even when the task seems, the situation seems impossible, God's going to honor our obedience. And then we're going to start to see great things. Because look what we read next, verses 9 and 10. It says that when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then that which is inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. So again, usually at the feast, they'd put out the good stuff first, and at the point that your taste buds were a little less, let's say, sensitive, it was like, bring out the Thunderbird, right? Bring out the, bring out the cheap stuff. And here we see that the wine that Jesus made from water was actually better, wasn't it, than the wine that was served at the beginning. And surely we see the spiritual significance here, right? Because in this first of signs, this is the very first sign that Jesus did, we see that those things which the Lord only can provide to us and the things that he can do for us, they will always surpass the things which the world can offer. Right here, when the heart of an unbeliever was filled with the word of God, then Jesus can do that miracle and bring joy. I think about Acts chapter 8. We think about the way that Philip filled up the Ethiopian with the word. The man believed. The miracle of salvation took place. And then it says that that man went his way rejoicing. And here this wine that Jesus provided was far superior. It brought joy to all of those who would drink it, just as he's done for so many of us here this morning. Right? It's that miracle of conversion, but not conversion of water into wine, but it's that conversion that takes place in each of our lives from the old ways, right, of our, our empty, hard hearts to that new ways of new life in Jesus. Or theologically speaking, it's that conversion from the old covenant of law and of ceremony and of purification pots over to the new covenant of grace and of fellowship and of the Spirit. See, this is the very first sign recorded that Jesus performed. It's a, a demonstration for us of what doctrinally, what John said in, in uh, verse 1, chapter 17, when he said that the law was given through Moses, but what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this first miracle speaks of joy and of life and of the Holy Spirit. And in a very powerful way, the significance of this miracle is that just as the wine that Jesus provided was superior to the wine that had just run out, that new covenant that Jesus would usher in, the Bible says was superior to the old covenant. Because God, just as they thought the bridegroom has done, had done, God has kept back the best gift, his son, until now. He'd saved that back until last. And it's this gift now that's available by faith to anyone who would just accept it. Look what we see next. John tells us in verse 11 that this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So here's the, the key. This first miracle that Jesus performed, right, this turning of water into wine, it's not meant to be a discussion or a debate about the merits of alcohol. It's a demonstration of our Lord's glory, right? John had already written that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that we beheld his glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here Jesus, for the very first time, is making visible, he's making known to them just a glimpse of his glory which would been, had been hidden so far. They got just a little peek, if you will, into the glory that belonged to Jesus. And yet, John tells us, it was enough to get these first few disciples to believe that this carpenter from Nazareth was much more than he appeared to be. So here on the third day, his glory, if only in part, was revealed, and they start to believe in him. Now, what's interesting, if you're familiar at all with John's gospel, is in just the chapter before this, it already said that they believed before. But now their belief is deepened and it's re-expressed. And I think that that's so typical of the way that the Lord Jesus works in our Christian lives as well. He, right, he does something great in our lives and it causes us, if you will, to believe in him all over again. Now, as we finish up today, I want you to consider with me one last thing. It's actually that main thing that I promised. I promised and my wife tells me that lying is not becoming of a pastor, so I'm gonna deliver on that. Here's the thing. Here's what I believe that God would have for us to take with us into this new year. And that's this, that this, this story of Jesus turning the water into wine is so well known that it can be told by believers, it can be told by non-believers alike. And yet, what we need to remember is that this very first sign at this time that it happened, the only ones who truly knew what had taken place, the only ones who recognized the miracle were the servants and the disciples. In other words, the only ones who truly knew what had just taken place were the ones who were watching the Lord. No one else knew where the wine came from. Right, there were no oohs and ahs as the wine was poured out, like some kind of wine commercial, right? There was no applause and accolades for the winemaker. Nobody rushed over to Jesus' side to congratulate him on his great vintage or whatever, right? Instead, there were some dropped jaws. There were some wide eyes on the faces of some very tired servants and this little handful of these brand new disciples because they were the ones that had their eyes and their hearts fixed on the Lord. And it's interesting because in a way, this first public miracle of Jesus is very similar to his very first appearance on earth that we just celebrated at Christmas when there were only a few shepherds who were really aware of the miracle that had just happened. We know, as we've been studying, there are going to be times later in his ministry when he would publicly demonstrate his deity with this bold and awesome authority. But on this particular day, at this wedding here in Cana, Jesus chose to reveal himself only to some humble, obedient servants and these brand new disciples. And as a result, it says, they put their faith in him. 
And their faith, right, was just this baby faith and it would be tested and it would be developed by this kind of progressive revealing of his glory. And yet at this point, you know, they had no understanding of his death and his resurrection that would come, but they did know his power. And that was enough for now. And I think for us, there's so much you know, if you're like me, there's so much about the Lord Jesus that we've yet to understand. And yet, based on what he has shown us, based on what he has done for each one of us in our own experience with him, we should at least know his power. And that should be enough to keep us watching and attentive, right, to see more. What will he do next? Again, I think it's safe to say if you came out this morning in the rain, right, I think it's safe to say that, that all of us here want to know more about the Lord Jesus, and not just to know more about him intellectually, but really to know more experientially, right, in that deep personal way, and to have more of his glory revealed to us. And yet I think as we've seen in our text this morning, the glory of Jesus is first revealed here to those who were watching expectantly and who were listening intently and who were serving him obediently, right? Who had their eyes fixed on him. And that is the key, I think, for us as well. And it's something so simple, but it's something that we can carry with us into this new year, right? Look for practical ways that we can fix our focus on him. Place yourselves in positions where you can be serving him, watching him work, getting that front row seat. Whether it's serving in the children's ministry, boy, there's miracles that happen back there every day, right? Or, or serving out front, preparing things for the service. Get involved in serving him and watch him work. You know, our, our culture is so complex and we have enough work, right, just trying to live out our lives within it. But I think as we do that, let's just remember the simple story of these servants at the wedding feast. Let's remember the exhortation of Hebrews chapter 12 that says that we're to run this race with endurance, right? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, I... I know no better way sometimes to fix my eyes on Jesus and to remember what it is that he's done for us than to celebrate communion. We're blessed this morning. We get this opportunity to partake together, to remember his broken body, right? His blood that was shed for us on the cross. So we're going to take some time this morning as Kissy Apollo just minister through music. When you're ready, I want you to come forward and just it's self-serve this morning. Pick up a packet and uh, take that back to your seat and just consider these things. Maybe spend some time reflecting again on the year that's passed and reflecting on what you think that Jesus is calling you to do in the year ahead based on that intimacy you have with him. Amen? So, Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this morning and we thank you for just such a simple exhortation that we find in this text, Lord. We pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed fully on your son, Jesus. Lord, watching and waiting for whatever it is that he wants to do next, Lord, and being obedient as he gives us instruction. 
We pray even now that as we go to this time of communion, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, help to uncover those areas that may, um, areas where we may need to confess and to repent and to cleanse and to prepare ourselves to serve you better and more wholeheartedly this year. So we pray, Lord, for this time. We pray that you would bless it. If um, For those here, Lord, who don't know you, we pray that they would come and that they would seek prayer and seek counsel and seek encouragement, Lord, so that they could embrace and come to know the new life that you offer through Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name.